I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey everyone, it's Pacific, and this is episode 10. Just a quick note, we have two more weeks, uh, two more episodes after this, and then we're wrapped for season one. But we will be back for season two in early 2021. So... Stay tuned. And you'll notice this episode's a little longer than what we usually do, uh, because it's a very special episode, and I'm really excited for it. But without saying anything more, enjoy this week's episode. It's strange how things happen around us and we don't notice. Lola's father came back from his work trip, which was extended twice and I suspect might have been something else entirely. He came to the flat to see Lola. There were some tears, but not a lot of talking. It was tough to watch. Thank God Mike was there. It was my first time meeting her dad. He looked a lot older than I expected, but losing a spouse suddenly will do that, I suppose. Mike's sister died from drugs. It wasn't an overdose, it was a reaction. Apparently, that's important. She was always a sensible one, and Mike was always the wayward son. I think he feels it should have been him to have a bad reaction to something he shouldn't have taken. The father feels guilty too, of course, and Lola's old enough to understand what death means, but too young to know what to feel about it. I felt like an intruder into so much misery, making it all worse just by existing. Lola will carry on staying with me and Mike for the time being. That's what her dad said. For the time being, which sounded a lot like forever. Not that I mind. And that surprised me more than anything. I'm actually fine with her being around. I quite like her. She's quiet and shy, but there's always something going on in her head. She's always drawing a picture or telling a story. 
Like I said, it's funny how these things sneak up on us. I have a child now, sort of. A niece, kind of, who lives with me, after a fashion. I didn't see that one coming. There was quite a lot to think about that morning. Even Miss Arundel thought I seemed quiet. I laughed it off and said I was just a bit hungover. Not sure why the lie, but she didn't question it. I passed Professor Burtwistle on the stairs, and I told him I'd been wondering about the project. It was a bit of a tester to gauge if he knew I'd been snooping around. He didn't show any reaction, so either he's got an excellent poker face or he didn't know I'd seen the contract between the Institute and the project. They're just a lot of Americans, he said, pronouncing the word as if it was a racial insult. Let me deal with them. I said it might make my job easier if maybe I could speak with them. He harumphed at me, which is his standard reply to everything. You don't want to have to bother with that lot, he said. My job for my sins... One more piece of nonsense never bloody ends. The package was waiting on my desk when I went down. Miss Arundel must have got in before me and left it there. At least I hope she did. I don't want these things to start teleporting into my presence. It was wrapped in brown paper, large, square and thin. I sat down, sighed and opened it up. There were two cards this time. One was the standard white card signed Mr. Havisham. The other was from the Vance Auction House in London. Written on the back in ballpoint pen was, Went for three grand. You owe me. The package was a vinyl record in a cardboard sleeve. It was entitled, Eat Your Mushroom Kaiser Bill, and the image on the sleeve was a black and white photograph of a smiling man at a piano in a pub, surrounded by cheering men in uniforms and tin hats. On the back was a track listing, just one on each side. The title song by Charlie Rackham and his laughing piano, and on the other side, The Ghosts of Flanders by Phyllis Vaughan. Along with a small paragraph explaining that proceeds from the sale of the record and sheet music of the songs would go to the Brotherhood and Sisterhood of Relief for the People of Flanders. Judging by the uniforms of the soldiers... The record was from the First World War, and it had the feel of something genuinely old. The record inside seemed intact. It was ten inches across with a printed label. There was a sheet of paper in the sleeve, too, on the headed notepaper of the Vance Auction House. The record was lot 14, and a short description said it was of a very limited printing which had the original Ghosts of Flanders B-side. The song was considered bad for national morale and replaced after the first printing with a version of It's a Long Way to Tipperary, making this record very rare. Three grand's worth of rare, apparently. I wasn't sure how to play the thing. I wasn't a vinyl sort of person, and I didn't know if a regular deck would even play something that wasn't 12 or 7 inch. Of course, Mike knew someone, he always does. He has a friend who's a music tech for a recording studio. So I gave the record to Mike, which is the first time I've let one of the project's artefacts leave my possession, and he returned that evening with the record and a thumb drive with a digital version of the two songs. I was very relieved he hadn't looked too deeply into what I'd given him. I didn't want him knowing about the things the project sends me. 
I'd rather he not be constantly aware of how precarious the few good things in this world are. The way they could be erased from existence by a proverbial horseshoe nail going missing. It's bad enough dealing with the crap this world throws at us, without having to deal with an infinity of timelines and all their baggage too. Eat Your Mushroom Kaiser Bill was a simple jolly tune, the kind to be belted out around a pub's piano or at the end of a musical show. Charlie Rackham sounded like a Cockney George Formby, hammering a piano instead of a ukulele. Phyllis Vaughan was completely the opposite, with a high, warbling voice that sounded tinny and feeble on the old recording. Her song was a proper dirge, trying far too hard to make the listener feel miserable and guilting them into donating to the brotherhood and sisterhood of the relief for the people of Flanders. I listened through to both of them enough times to get a transcription of the songs. Without anything obviously anomalous about the physical record in its sleeve, I figured whatever the project wanted me to learn must be in the lyrics somewhere. The first one I wrote down was Eat Your Mushroom Kaiser Bill. It was pretty jolly stuff, I suppose, if you're still okay with calling German people the Hun. It sounded a lot more fun than anything I associate with the First World War. What struck me first was how it seemed to celebrate the Allied powers, particularly Britain, winning the Great War by invading Germany and taking Berlin, something that absolutely did not happen in our timeline. Germany capitulated and signed the 11th of November armistice in 1918 before their front collapsed. Precisely so Germany would not suffer the massive defeat and occupation that would have followed. 
what changed, dated according to the song, from the Battle of Messines. In terms of the Great War, Messines wasn't a big deal compared to Verdun or the Somme. It was fought in 1917 prior to the Ypres Offensive in Flanders in northern Belgium. Ypres was called Wipers by the British troops, like in the song. Messines was fought to capture high ground overlooking the German positions to help the subsequent British advance. High ground is a relative term, since Flanders is as flat as a snooker table. The high point of Messines Ridge was 80 metres above sea level. The British plan to take Messines Ridge involved digging tunnels hundreds of metres long under the German positions and filling huge underground chambers with explosives. The Germans found one of them and assumed they'd stopped the British mining strategy entirely. It's almost impossible for them to have been more wrong. At 3.10am on June 7th, 1917, 20 underground mines exploded over the course of about 20 seconds. 10,000 German soldiers died instantly. They heard the explosion in London. European universities reported it as an earthquake. It was the biggest non-nuclear man-made explosion in history. The Battle of Messines was a victory for the British and Anzac forces who took the ridge in the wake of the explosions, but what followed wasn't. The offensive into Flanders was a catastrophe that served no purpose at all except to kill hundreds of thousands of men on both sides. So what happened at the Battle of Messines in the universe of this record to change that? My mind went back to that phrase, the biggest non-nuclear explosion. And I imagined a mushroom cloud rising over Flanders, the mushroom that Kaiser Bill was forced to eat. The threat of more mushroom clouds all over Germany if the Kaiser's commanders didn't surrender. And a proud military aristocracy, obsessed with saving face, accepting a humiliating total surrender only when faced with complete annihilation. I was getting ahead of myself. I fill in the gaps with whatever my brain cooks up in the moment, which is always the worst thing I can imagine. I clicked on the other file, the second song.
German soldiers wiped out in the blast at Messines wouldn't have been the only casualties. A nuclear flash can cause blindness. Burns, too. There were civilians at Hiroshima and Nagasaki who had the patterns on their clothes branded onto them. And thousands of tonnes of Belgian earth would be thrown into the air, only needing a breath of wind to scatter all over Flanders. The sickness it brought would see hair falling out, pallor, vomiting, diarrhoea, internal bleeding. The worst would have the skin sloughing off. A rash of victims of this horrible new disease in the wake of a nuclear blast, wandering a shell-shocked nation, desperate for help. And the only thing the Brotherhood and Sisterhood of Relief for the people of Flanders could offer was a relatively painless and serene death. The first nuclear tests were less than 30 years after the end of our First World War. A permutation of events surely exists that would have developed those sciences a few decades earlier. A slightly smarter Newton or Planck, a more rapid search for practical uses of Einstein's theories. Mary Curie developed X-ray technology for the French army during the First World War, and maybe a less pacifistic version of her could have turned her theories into a weapon. It's not likely, certainly, but then... Neither was the devastation at Messines in our timeline. The Germans certainly didn't see it coming. A world where the British won the Great War with a new and terrible weapon would have rewritten the world. No broken and resentful Germany left to its own devices, for one thing. And it's hard to believe the British granting independence to the components of their empire now they possess the ultimate weapon. Would there be a cold war between Britain and whoever developed the bomb next? Or would Britannia rule the waves again? 
Call me unpatriotic, but I don't think a sole nuclear power, one already willing to commit Amritsar massacres and throw burrs into concentration camps, will be a good thing for the world. The record goes onto the shelves and I hope no one will ever play it again. It opens up a million possibilities, all of them bad. A year cut off the end of the Great War seems like a good thing, certainly, but not at the expense of a nuclear world led by a Britain that still thought it should rule it. I'll type up my notes, close the file, and let it sit at the back of my mind to fester like always. Lola will be back by the time I get home. I'm glad for that. She's of a generation like mine that will never be drafted to bleed and die in a muddy corner of Belgium. I hope she's of a generation that will never have to worry about nuclear weapons flying across the planet. Thinking about her future makes me want the world to be better, for her sake, much more than I want it to be better for mine. I realise now I actually care for someone. I don't know if I ever truly have before. Funny how these things sneak up on you. Out of Place was created by Ben Counter. This episode featured two songs. Eat Your Mushroom, Kaiser Bill was composed and performed by Matt Roy Berger. The Ghost of Flanders was composed by Matt Roy Berger and performed by Melissa Lusk. Our title music was done by Tom Rory Parsons. And I'm your sound designer and producer, Pacific S. Obadiah. This is a Midnight Disease production. For more information, visit midnightdisease.net.